is uh, the Wednesday program in the last hour, and that means uh, Robert Metz and Jeff Schlemmer join me, and they are indeed in the studio. Welcome to both of you. Morning. Now, this uh, part of the show is called Left, Right, and Center, but as we've noted before, we don't always, it, we're not always polarized on issues. Some issues we simply discuss and try to, uh, to apply our three intellects to them and see what we can come up with. This morning, I don't know how much uh, uh, head-butting disagreement there is, but it's certainly an interesting topic out there that we're going we're gonna to go with this morning. Um, and, and that is, is Oak Ridge Secondary School. I mentioned it earlier today, and we ran out of time to talk about it, but Oak Ridge Secondary School has achieved, somehow, uh, the status of a, uh, of a charitable organization insofar as they can now issue income tax receipts uh, for donations made to the school. Um, on the surface... Well, it, it looks pretty straightforward. Uh, somebody uh, in the uh, to do with the parents, I, I assume, some parent group there, uh, sought and received this uh, uh, this dispensation from the government, and it means, in practical terms, that parents of children at Oak Ridge, or in fact anybody who wants to, can donate to the school and get a tax receipt, so it's tax deductible, uh, and that money will be used to improve. Uh, we are told the quality of education. Um, at this point, I'm not aware that they're suggesting hiring extra teachers or better teachers. I, I believe it's more along the lines of perhaps more books for the library, better computer equipment, better audiovisual, uh, perhaps more extracurricular, that sort of thing. But things that will improve the quality, the overall quality of the education for the kids that are there. Now, on the one hand, people are saying there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. If I want to contribute to a school where my kids go, or indeed to any school I feel like it, I should be free to do so, and if they can use the money in a positive way, no problem. On the other side of the argument are those people who say, well, yeah, but that stops a little short, because what it's really going to mean is that we are very quickly going to see privileged and non-privileged schools in our system. Same teachers, same quality of teachers, same curriculum, but that's where it will end, and the wealthy schools will be exactly that, wealthy schools, they'll have all the extra bells and whistles that the schools in perhaps the uh, more economically challenged part of the city simply will not have. Uh, my guests this morning, again, as I said, I'm not sure that they're going to butt heads on it, but I'm really curious to find out what they both think about it. And Jeff, let me start with you. You're a big fan of egalitarianism, of, uh, of uh, trying to ensure that we all have equal opportunity and equal access to things in our society. Is this a threat to that if we allow individual schools to start raising money in this fashion? Well, I think that I could see it going in that direction, and right now there's all kinds of fundraising that goes on in schools. Uh, my daughter has a, a, a fundraiser on right now to raise money for their sports team, for instance. We've had home and school associations who have always had a role in fundraising. The question is sort of, do you up the ante with the uh, the tax deduction thing? I'm, I'm interested in finding out how they did that, frankly, because I, I don't know what the laws are as to who gets it and who doesn't get it, but I know, for instance, that our law clinic cannot qualify uh, for tax, uh, for charitable tax status, if somebody donates some money to our cl clinic, as happens from time to time, they don't get a receipt. Uh, municipal politics, you may be aware, you don't get a tax mm -hmm. receipt if you donate to a municipal politician. Um, churches, I believe you do, I think. Uh, yeah. Social agencies, generally you do. Uh, but uh, one thing that raised for me when you mentioned it was, uh, I read a couple of days ago in the paper about a charter school being set up in uh, Alberta that has to have a business theme, and it's a public school. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that the kids are going to wear little business suits, they're going to be required to carry briefcases instead of knapsacks, um, that they said that their math program is going to be based on all business applications of math and so on. And I, I find that a little 
chilling, <laughs> frankly. And I, the whole idea of sort of getting into this sort of diverse education at the primary level instead of a unified common education, I, I just don't think is healthy for the society. Well, what about the, the idea that the parents, uh, on the one hand, the parents, we would think, would, should have the right to do this, but on the other hand, uh, does, it dis, does it disenfranchise or, or disadvantage the kids whose parents don't have the money to do it? Well, I don't think it disenfranchises anyone. I think anyone who's arguing that we're going to end up with privileged and non-privileged schools is correct. But that's how it should be, because otherwise the alternative is all schools have to be equally bad. I mean, if you're going to go for a common denominator, it's always the bottom. It's never the top. So, you know, and why, are they, why do they want to raise this money, as you say, to improve the quality of education? If we said you can't do that, then we're telling them, well, no, you're not allowed to improve the quality of education because your standard must be the same as the standard next door, which is lower. What if we say to them, what if we were to say, or the school board was to say, um, okay, Oak Ridge got this dispensation. We're not going to allow them to use it unilaterally. And we, I, I think they have the authority to do that, the school board, if they, well, let's assume they do. Um, what would be wrong with saying, okay, we're going to do this across the board, that uh, if people are concerned about improving the quality of education, we will, we will provide these tax exempt or these to other tax receipts. So you don't donate to a specific school, you donate to the board. Was there anything, anything inherently wrong with that? Uh, from the parents' point of view, it means less control and less possibility of their effort going into their own school. Um, and therefore, I think you're going to get less, less response to it. When people are, the more localized, uh, uh, particularly a charitable effort is, and the more immediate people can see the results of their contributions right, right in front of them, mm -hmm. that's when you're going to get a response. When, when it goes, you know, the further away it goes to a school board or then to the provincial government or whatever, uh, it's just not going to endear anyone, and no one's going to expect any fair share of that money to come back to them. What about the parents in the, uh, Jeff, I'll ask you, what about the parents in the, call it the disadvantaged school area, who simply don't have the money? They'd love to do this. They'd love to do what the wealthy people in the Oak Ridge area are doing, but they simply don't have the money. Are they to be penalized, you know, Bob spoke a moment ago, about wanting to improve education? Well, they want to improve it for their kids, too, but they can't afford it. Yeah, and I guess I presume that if you take it through, like at the first level, what you're saying is that you've got all the schools with the same level of funding, but there will be certain super schools whose parents do have discretionary incomes mm -hmm. and they can't afford to get the bells and whistles programs. Uh, so one might argue, I suppose, that if there's going to be more private subsidization of schools, that theoretically, ultimately, education tax could come down. Uh, I, I don't know if they would make that argument or not. Um, but uh, one thing that, though, that Bob says that I agree with completely, and that is that the more hands-on you're giving is, the better it is, the more connected you feel. So, that, for instance, if you are connected to a home and school program and you're, and you're out there doing a bake sale, I think that's a good thing. It makes people feel much more that they're getting a tangible return for the uh, volunteer uh, thing that they're doing. Uh, and then that can only build a sense of community. Um, but having said that, I don't know if tax exemption is really the, the, the way to go for that because in effect you're almost sort of uh, underwriting or uh, I hate to say bribing, but uh, you're sort of undercutting the quality of the volunteerism. You know, instead of coming out and doing it because you think it's the right thing to do, instead of going out to uh, get involved in the life of the community because you want or the school because you want but, kids but to have a better time already saying, being if the government pays me money I'll come out and volunteer people are already paying for the education system through their taxes which is not a voluntary thing and so to me if especially if I can see in the future my taxes coming down as a result of more and more of this kind of activity going on which I think has to happen um, you know, to be quite frank, Jim, I don't even think education, especially above the primary grades, needs to be uh, in the kinds of buildings and structures in the way that we deliver it mm -hmm. today. I, I, I'm almost convinced that once you know how to read and write and do some arithmetic, you could, you could get a university degree online now. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that's basically where we're going. I think we're almost looking at an ancient institution and trying to figure out other ways to use it. Um, well, interesting. For, for, you know, I, I see education as mostly daycare, not, mm -hmm. not so much education. Otherwise, we'd be rushing the kids through as fast as we could to get as much knowledge into their heads as fast as possible yes. if education was the objective. Certainly no question we could be filling their little heads faster than we do. Well, and the other thing is that uh, we do have these traditional uh, bricks and mortar institutions of schools and I've always wondered about building a big uh, uh, solid school for a neighborhood knowing that it's a new subdivision and then in 20 years those kids are all going to have moved away and then you close that school for for some length of time or whatever uh, and it always seemed to me that there was some way that you could have a more either a more temporary structure or one that was designed to be changed to something well, else. Well now there's a there was a I, I was trying to remember this morning because I mentioned this I think it was maybe in the free press and within the last few days and they talked about these like a core school where what you actually the only thing you built was the core building that had the administrative offices uh, had a gymnasium or a gymtorium in it, had a library in it, perhaps the nurses and that sort of thing, and that's all you built. And and what you did for the kids was you brought in modular uh, classrooms. So depending on the enrollment in that area, you would bring in X number of modular classrooms. Um, and if there was no enrollment at all, if it got to the point where there just weren't enough kids to do there, uh, the modulars go somewhere else, and you are left with a community center. Yeah, sounds you, great. You have a, a relatively small. Sounds building. like a business. Sounds more like somebody's running a business. Well, they're <laughs> doing it that way. So the, you got, I thought it was a great idea. Obviously, you guys liked it too. Well, I, I think it's great. I'd like. I think it's a wonderful option. I, I personally think every school in the province should be privatized, and the, the taxpayers should be able to send their education taxes to the school of their choice, and that will likely be a local one. Let me ask you a question for both of you, uh, and, and Jeff, you alluded to this earlier about sort of a universal universality of, of kind of an educational experience. Um, many, many parents would like to see or like to have more control over their kids' education. Many parents today are opting out of the system, even though they still have to pay for it, and they have to pay extra to put their kids somewhere else. Um, there's an argument to be made, the free enterprise argument, that parents should be able to go to whatever school they want. But there's another argument that that may prove ultimately to be divisive in your community and in your society. That there is a value to having some kind of commonality, at least to the, to the core curriculum, so that every child is, is having somewhat the same experience. The idea being that every child is going to have to live in somewhat the same society when all is said and done. Either of you want to comment on that, the pros well, and cons? Well, one thing I guess off the bat is that I think that it's been demonstrated over and over again from the standpoint of municipal planning that ghettoization is a bad idea, that creating areas where poor people live, where the schools are not as good and so on, just, just is going to ask for trouble. That's where your crime will be. That's where you get the, the, the uh, uh, sort of... You're getting, saying we don't have that now? Getting wrapped up in, uh, in um, sort of multi-generational poverty and so on. The, the ideal community is one, like I look at the Worley Village, for instance, where you've got nice houses, but you've got low-income housing as well. You've got schools where you have rich kids and poor kids. To me, that's that's a, a much more cohesive way to build your community and a healthier one. I'm afraid that if you have oh, a system where there. you're going to bid on which school you go to, there'll be certain schools that will fill up fast um, with rich kids, and then the poor kids will take the leftovers, uh, and, and that'll be worse. Well, but, you know, Wortley Village got built before the city's owners and planners got at it. Well, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Although there are a couple of buildings there that shouldn't be there. Uh, it's an interesting comment, though, Jeff, but what if, and, and here's one of the, the options that's been talked about for, for uh, uh, charter schools. The option is that you would not be left to your own devices to pay for your education, that there would still be an educational tax structure, and everyone would get their share of that educational tax and that would be what you would spend to go to the school. So you wouldn't necessarily spend extra to go to this school. You'd have the same amount to spend to whatever school you went, but you would be looking for the school that offered you the best value for your money. 
Does that make it any better? Well, again, if, if the theory is that there's an absolutely level playing field in all respects, that uh, Conrad Black's kid has no better shot at getting into a school than uh, the poorest kid on the street, I, I, I frankly find hard to believe a system could be like that. But if that well, were you'd possible, you'd have to ban then, private uh, education to prevent that. You'd have to make it against the law for private high-quality universities and colleges to exist. No, I don't think but, you have to do it. No, I don't think well, so. how are you going to stop no. a guy like Conrad no, no. Black? No, I don't think you do. I don't think you really do stop him because we don't stop him now. We say the right. Conrad Blacks of the world, if you want to send them to, to Ridley College or whatever, you go ahead and do that. I'm talking about the vast majority of people where we say today where we're, we're not happy with the quality of the school isn't there. So my suggestion is, or it has been suggested by wiser people than me, that, that what you do is you, we still pay our education tax, but instead of that, in the city of London, for example, the $7,000 per student going to the Board of Education, the $7,000 per student in form of a voucher comes back to the parent. And then you can then spend that voucher, but no more. You can spend that voucher at the school of your choice. So the theory is it promotes um, educational excellence because if you want the funding from these parents, you've got to give them value for their money, but it doesn't allow Conrad or anybody else to double the amount and stick his kid into a, uh, a, a public school in the same sense as what we're talking about. He can still send his kid to Ridley College if he wants. Now, in a sense, we have that for the high schools, in the sense that kids have a fair bit of choice in London as to which high school they go to, and mm -hmm. it's not, by any means, always the closest high school. Mm -hmm. And they, they do have specialization. There are some technical schools, some that are you know, considered to be the academic schools, some that are the arts schools. Uh, so there is that sort of a choice. I don't know if it would be all that different, whether you're doing it through a voucher system or whether it's just that you apply and you get in or you don't get in. Um, but in the public school, we really don't have that very much. We've got the Pearson School for the Arts, I mm -hmm. guess, that you apply to. Um, but for the most part, I think most people just go to the school that's closest. Um, for me, I would like to see things, if anything, go in the other direction. I, I've been surprised by how different the different schools are and how the curriculums seem to be somewhat different. The principals seem to have an awful lot of discretion in the individual schools as to what gets taught and what programs are offered and so on. And uh, I, I would have thought that you would be taking best practices from across the, the community and saying, well, we'd like everybody to have something like this. And, uh, you know, you've got different teachers who may have different well, if that's true, doesn't that speak counter to the whole premise of public education, which is supposed to be the same standard, the same education, the same curriculum, the same everything across the board? So well, yeah, all that's our why, kids. That's are, why I'm complaining. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's a good thing. I don't, I don't believe in this idea of uh, of same lang, you know, same same uh, instruction from from the cradle to the grave. Uh, certainly, you have to all learn how to read, mm -hmm. how to write how to do basic mathematics and some basic skills that you need to exist. Well, I've got uh, my Keras on my side, I'll have to tell you. But going for a standardized curriculum, standardized testing across the province. Well, I think past about grade six or so, I think uh, you know, education take, should take on a completely new form. I agree with that. Um, I think that's, that's a really I interesting idea. I think it idea. should be very broken down. It should be completely uh, choice-oriented. Because if you're looking for quality in education, you've only got one way to get that, and that's through having choice. But do you, if you don't like where you're at but now. You are the, are right. the kids mature enough to make the choice? That's, the that's parents parents if the kids aren't, then it's the parents. If the kids aren't kids and they're adults getting education, then it's them. But do the parents but have the knowledge or the or the information about what choices they should be making? Sure, Can they well, anticipate labor trends? They sure don't have it the under the current system. They don't even know how their kids are doing under the current system well, with all these vague so-called report cards they're getting. They don't even know whether Johnny's doing well or poorly. And generally. The business community and the social community is saying, well, Johnny's doing pretty poorly. Now, what's wrong with our school system? Our school system is a big state monopoly that teaches everybody the same thing, you know. And but are there, not, are there not some things that we need to know? And I, I think back to Jack Granitstein's book about who stole Chris, uh, Chris, uh, history, uh, the new book he's got out, bestseller. 
uh, people concerned about the fact that many Canadian young people have no idea what this country is. They don't know our history. They don't know the salient facts. They because our I, schools I are disagree completely with Jack's thesis, system. by the way. But I want to ask you about that. But, but my, 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 you know, the, the, the concern for me with what you're saying, Bob, is and, and, and I'm with you to a point. I think grade 6 or grade 7, teach them intensively. Teach them reading, writing, arithmetic, and, 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 and uh, help them with their cognitive abilities and so on. Teach them logic, I would teach them. Yeah. Um, yeah. But once they reach a certain point, beyond then, then here the kind of the world's your oyster. But I don't think you want kids, for example, do you, at 10 or 11 or 12, saying, I'm never going to study history again. I'm never going to study English again. I'm never going to study science again, because I'm not really interested in that. Well, that's what we had when I went to school back in the early 70s. It was completely choice in high school. You, you didn't take anything you didn't want to, and lots of kids didn't take English, for instance. And I think that was a disaster. Yeah, I was going to say, that's how it is now. In a private school, generally, that's not the case. In a mm -hmm. private school, they understand more better, like, what, what packages of education you need. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, that's and, the question, though, is whether and, you need an expert to tell you, here are the trends, here's the kinds of things well, where we see weaknesses. See, a private school has to run up. on its reputation. Okay, so if, if they've got, if they're doing poorly, if their students have a bad reputation, parents are going to see that, even if they don't understand exactly what's being taught in the classroom or whether this is something that their kids need to know or don't need to know or is outdated information. Um, you know, it's remarkable in this day of computers how far behind really our, our public education system is to the average kid at home. He's miles mm -hmm. ahead of them, oh, yeah. you know, in terms of what he can do online, what he can do with a computer, what the potential are career opportunities. The world is changing rapidly and our education system is geared to an old agricultural uh, system that was at the turn of the century. Um, boy, I mean, I'm telling you, I, I really feel our education systems in, in the well, medieval age. Well, what do kids need to learn then? Let me ask both of you that. Jeff, what do kids need to learn from school? Uh, they need to learn how to think. They need to learn some uh, degree of discipline. They need to learn responsibility. Um, are they learning those I don't, things? Do I don't they? think they need to learn a lot of nuts and bolts about how to do a particular thing. I think that to the extent that learning math, for instance, teaches you a, the discipline of thinking through problems and thinking analytically, it's useful. But the substantive knowledge isn't that useful. We talked about Jack Granenstein's book earlier and about the uh, change in history. And I think that a lot of the history I learned as a kid was, was really just politics. You know, they would just, uh, somebody would write a book and it would be about how, well, basically the history that I remember is where the white guys went mm -hmm. and who they fought. <laughs> Mm -hmm. You know, and that was it. You know, we didn't learn about what life was about. We didn't learn, uh, you know, how we got from there to here. There was all kinds of elements of the society of the day that I would have been really interested in finding out about, but didn't. You see, now, now I was very blessed that way because I had a history teacher in, in, in high school who uh, believed that you had to have that context. His name's Jim Ryan, and he may still be teaching. Um, and he uh, awakened a lifelong interest in history in me because I mean, he, he gave us the other stuff, but he had the freedom to do that. It's, I'm not, is it the curriculum or is it the teachers? I don't know. A good question. I like history too, and I, I don't know why, <laughs> but uh, I find it fascinating. And uh, but but when I think back to it, a lot of the history that I learned at the time was just that I happened to be interested in it and, and happened to read about it. Um, and and I have to to go back to my sort of other theme, which is that I don't think public education today is so bad. And when I look at what my kids are learning today, a lot of it is far more advanced than what I was learning in my day. I, I think that there are specific problems. I know that when I a pet peeve of mine when I mark law school papers is typos spelling mistakes and I get them all the time and I don't know whether it's the education system uh, I particularly think in the day of spell checkers that there's just no excuse for it so I'm hard whole on language. that whole I say you can that's bad mm -hmm. yeah maybe I don't know um, I've, I've studied whole language extensively I was thrown in my face when I once ran for trustee here in the city 
And uh, I was just astounded that anyone would even think that this is an appropriate way to teach no, a lots, child lots how to read. Lots of people did, and, and we, a lot of people and we tried. It. We tried to teach a lot of kids that way, and I think most people who look at it now think that it wasn't the success they wanted it to be. Uh, we're going to go to the phones here, and I think we've got caller Jim with us. Hello, Jim. Are you there? Yeah. Good morning. Yes, sir. Uh, you guys really haven't focused on one little little uh, snippet this morning as the as the main theme. So as you say, you circled the wagons a hundred and one different ways. But Tony. Tony Brown, who's a commentator on PBS, a black commentator on PBS, excellent sociologist, had a show on a while back about education and computers and the impact, and that if we didn't get on board this train soon, those who didn't would be left behind. Yeah. He tells the story of a little five-year-old black kid in the ghettos. And like the fellow said yesterday, um, Peter, who said, well, I'm redundant. They thought this kid was redundant. A big brother came along and bought him a computer. Twelve years later, he's now a 16-year-old nerd teaching all the rest of the kids and getting A-pluses in high school. Mm -hmm. And I think we need to take our public education system and see the demographics and look into the future and say, do I need to know that two times two is four when a computer voice is going to tell me that it's four? and teach them these sort of skills. I, apparently in grade nine or grade eight, I'm not too sure, there's a course on HTML, Hypertext Markup Language for Computers. Mm -hmm. well, well, my son will be teaching it. I mean, he already knows it now with their own homepage. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, but like, like, like um, Bob said, there's not enough of it in school. We don't have enough of it. Well, then again, and we're not preparing the kids. No, but then again, there's a, there's an old old argument about a liberal arts education, and, and Jeff kind of alluded to it earlier that what we're trying to do with these kids is to teach them to think, teach them to learn, and once they've grasped sort of you know those disciplines, then the world is their oyster. By that time, though, the world's ten years ahead of them, though the way it's going, and you know that, Jim. Well, if it takes 13 years to give them that education, yeah, I agree. But I'm kind of with Bob. I, I think we could probably do a lot more to compress the... Uh, That's the, my point. Yeah, the key. Today. Yeah. And secondly, secondly, the, the aspect of, of, of Oak Ridge... Uh, now, for seven years, I private schooled my children because for religious reasons and also for academic reasons, yeah. I thought the education was better. Can we... And this is the whole core issue with charter schools and all the rest. Don't I have the right to take my funds and direct them where I want to do. I do that in private life. We do it in business. I mean, if DJBK wants to hire <coughs> someone to do the siding on the roof, they use their money mm -hmm. as they see as they see best. Mm -hmm. Why can't we do that in the education system? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think it's because there are people who believe that everyone has to have an equal opportunity and that if you've got the opportunity to spend money on your kids and someone else doesn't, you shouldn't have that opportunity either. So That's so, the thinking. I don't support it, but that's I, I don't the general that, thinking. That thinking. That's what our education system is based on, by the way, is on that thinking. Economically, that's how it is structured. But, 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 but if you sat down with the average citizen, uh, or I shouldn't use the term average, if you sat down with some citizens, because the average citizen, forgive me, this sounds condescending, the media and the elite have them where they want them. But those who know a bit, if you ask those who know a bit, if I gave you $10,000 a year, $8,000 a year, and you could take your kid to any school you want, Majority, and we'll pull them out of the public school and go elsewhere. Well, you bet. Why? We have to ask ourselves why. Mm -hmm. Because of the size of the class. My kids were in a school with a budget of two hundred and fifty thousand with a hundred kids. That same two hundred fifty thousand is only good for thirty kids in a public school. Mm -hmm. Why? Because of salaries and et cetera, et cetera. Now, agreed, the public school system has has better tools. They have the Bunsen burners and the big gyms, and we have the John Paul Mall. 
that's another story too. Yeah. But do you say that having a teacher having much lower pay is better for the kids, or is it? Is it doesn't well, make these, a difference? Well, this, this is a Christian school, and these kids were and these teachers were committed to to the ministry. But isn't that taking advantage of them then, though? If you could say we can take advantage of their Christianity, they're willing, no, to, they're willing to work for no. extremely low pay because they're good Christians. No. That they, seems they kind of exploitative it, to me. They saw it as a calling. They saw it as a ministry. No, I think, Jeff, though, in fairness, though, the, the people who send their, their kids to that school are, pay, are already still paying all their education oh, tax. Oh, yeah, they're I pay not, double. But I'm not talking about that. I'm saying why is it better for a kid to be taught by somebody who only makes half as much money? Are they leaner and meaner or something? Oh, I don't not understand at all. the advantage but, of that. But, but it's not a cause effect. That just happens no. to be the case. And, when and, someone and, has a calling, they're willing to do what they want to right. do. Uh, they'll do it almost for nothing. Sometimes. And you want to know something, Jeff? They, and, and Jim Chapman uses this word quite a bit. It's the S word. It's not sex. Sacrifice. Got to go. Thanks Bye -bye. for calling. Bye-bye. 1290 Dave's with us. Hi, Dave. Good morning. Uh, I'm going to have to go for a doctor's appointment, so I'm dropping in a telephone booth. Okay. I wanted to make two comments. First of all, that uh, at Oak Ridge, I was sent home a note earlier in the year asking to contribute $5 for certain courses to help pay for uh, right. miscellaneous items, of which I had no control over. So yeah. I wrote a note saying uh, I wasn't interested in sending the money in. So I would like to see, if we do do it privately, that we do have the control of knowing where it's going. Right. And secondly, the new standardized re reports. I've heard you use the phrase standardized testing is good, too, or at least talked about standardized testing. Yes, we've talked about it. When they had the grade three testing, none of the teachers were given any of the uh, any standardized tests to give to children. And now that they've got the new standardized reports, each teacher Let's take all the grade fives in London. Mm -hmm. we, each teacher is in charge of giving their own tests in their own way, and yet they put it on one standardized report. Mm -hmm. What I'd like to get from comments from the gentleman there is, uh, what do you think about when they send out the new curriculum, they sent tests to go with them, instead of suddenly, perhaps in a year or so, saying, oh, let's have one big test again. Yeah, I wasn't aware that they hadn't done that. Do you guys know anything about that? I... Oh, I'm no, right. sorry, I don't. It's funny because I was, I was just in conversation about a week ago with Sheila Morrison, of all people, who called me about the new standards uh, uh, that she saw, and she was quite unhappy with them because the way she described them is that there's basically four levels, and if I recall them correctly, it was something like appro approaching provincial standard, at provincial standard, above provincial standard, or, or utterly below. But apparently no child in the system can ever get above provincial standard uh, or get an A, in other words, un unless they do work outside the actual curriculum. Now, that's my understanding of it. So even if you had a math test and per performed 100% on it, you'd still get a B because you were only at provincial standards and not above it. And Remember I'm thinking, what that, a yeah. strange that, uh, that system. That would depend, though, on whether you're using Dave's test or Dave's uh, next-door teacher teaching the same grade. Oh, it, it's all—it's totally subjective that's all the right. way through. I mean, there, there, there's no—and uh, and that subjectivity comes again from that, that desire to equalize everyone. They don't want Johnny number one to think he's worse than Johnny number two because he's got a, that much of a lower mark. And, and, and they want the system to look better than it is as well, because if you really put hardcore, objectivized testing into the system, it would reveal it for what it is. But that's exactly what they do once on a grand scale, and they use those— test to say that the educational system is not doing what it should. If they would send out all the testing like they um, did years and years ago with the common curriculum, mm -hmm. then I think uh, you would have teachers saying, 
Oh, we know exactly what you mean. Uh, when that beep test comes along, we'll have them all ready for you. Yeah, good point today. Anyway, man. thank you very much. Thanks for the call. Bye-bye. Okay. 643-1290, star-1290 on the Cantel. We invite your calls and comments this morning, too, along with Bob Metz and Jeff Schlemmer. We're talking on our Left, Right, and Center program, talking about education today and kind of uh, moving around the educational landscape here, if you will. Um, the, 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 the idea of testing, one of the arguments against universal testing is that kids aren't the same and that, that the results we're going to get from these kids may not be indicative of the, of the true needs of the kids nor of the society in terms no, no. of meeting the to educational what, needs. To what possible subjects can that apply to? Like in arithmetic, one plus one is two. I don't care what your economic status is or what your social status is. How, how well, can law, that apply? Law is one good example of that and uh, uh, you may be familiar with the law school admission test, the LSAT and the controversy around that, that uh, they found over and over again, you have to write this test to get into a law school and they take the score from the test as that and your grades are the, are the basis for admitting you to law school. Ralph Nader has been a big critic of that who's said over and over again it's not predictive of whether you're going to be a good lawyer or not. Mm -hmm. and we've seen, I know that the woman who got the highest score in my year uh, when I took it uh, failed first year law school. Uh, that it's so hard to, to put a test together that's going to assess what's going to be a good lawyer. I don't think that's the purpose of the test. The purpose of the test is to assess your knowledge. Whether you're good at conveying that knowledge to others or whether you're good at employing that knowledge in the marketplace so that you can make yourself a living are two separately Two well, they want to figure issues. out who's going to be the best candidate. But whether you know how to add the whole track, multiply, divide, or whether you know the law, in your case, that's what the issue of a test is. It doesn't go beyond that. Well, it's not a test about law because it's, you take it before law school. The thing is, of all the general population, who are the people who are most likely to be successful lawyers? This test purports to be able to assess that, and clearly, well, it you mean sort of like a lawyer's IQ test? Kind yeah, of thing? that's what it is. Well, general knowledge. Well, and, isn't that uh, isn't I mean, isn't that something that's more incumbent on the uh, on your profession to do something about? I know doctors oh, yeah. have certainly change. Over the last 30 or 40 years, medical schools have changed their attitudes towards doctors. The good marks are not, not I mean, they're still helpful, but there was a time when the, mar the good mark was it, period. That you, get at, you had the great, the great marks, and you got in, or you didn't, and you didn't. And now um, they're much more flexible about Oh, yeah, that. McMaster led the way in that, and saying there are other things to being a good doctor rather than just having high marks. No question. The other aspect of it, though, that I, that I find interesting from Bob's remarks earlier, and that is about other ways of teaching and uh, the, whole, the whole idea of how do you get a bunch of information into somebody's head so it stays there and they can use it? How do you make them be able to figure things out? And uh, I took a, a, a short course last year at Western in how to teach interesting classes. As you know, I teach at Western. And uh, I asked the guy almost semi-facetiously whether it was fair to make my law classes interesting because it'll make the uh, students think that law is just going to be a big funnel time when a lot of law is slogging through boring bo books you know at mm -hmm. late at night in a library library there's a lot of discipline involved in working your way through boring stuff but on the other hand uh, it seems to me that the and why would anyone do it why do you think someone would go through all that uh, a lot of people go to law school for money <laughs> well there, there's an incentive so you've answered your question how, do, how do you get ideas into somebody's head is you, they have to have an incentive to want those ideas or, or to to apply those ideas somehow uh, I think that's what a big problem with education is that so much of what is taught in the school appears irrelevant to the student particularly mm -hmm. yes. in how they're going sure. to apply it to their life and therefore I would suggest it's an entirely inappropriate time to even attempt to get that knowledge into their head at, at certain ages, you know, past basics. I know that uh, history was totally lost on me in high school, but later on in college and later on in life, it became a, almost a passion with me mm -hmm. because now I'm applying it. It's relevant. I'm using it. In, yeah. in high school, it was absolutely a waste of time. And it, like you say, I agree, it was mostly politics. And... Um, the same with many subjects. Uh, I know I always did well in subjects that are that, that you have a natural affinity to. You know, it's easy to, 
to do something well in something that you really mm -hmm. like. The challenge is, can you do well in a subject that you don't really have an affinity to? And yet you, or but I think things like the internet are a good example. You know, if you can get onto the internet and you can see live movies of uh, the Vatican and all the art there, and you can bring it to life with uh, with cartoons that show uh, Da Vinci working away, and here's the challenges he faced, and all this stuff, and here's what's interesting about his art. Instead of just reading it in a dry old book or having some worse, having someone lecture to you mm -hmm. and 30 other people at the same time, making it interactive. So if you're interested in a particular thing, you hit a hot button and it takes you into that whole area. You know, what was the music like in those days? And you can hear the actual music by the actual instruments. That the potential of the internet is just immense. And the question is, how do we get our brain switched around fast enough to use it? Good point. We're going to switch ourselves around here for a moment or two, but we're back with more left, right, and center. We invite you to join us at 643-1290, star 1290 on the Cantel. This is Left, Right, and Center with Jeff Schlemmer and Bob Metz and Jim Chapman. I want to come back now to back to where almost where we started because we the last comment was about computers and the internet and so on and, and perhaps the, the future of education, how it's tied up with that. Back to the Oak Ridge High School uh, situation again where the a group, a parents group we assume, has got tax-free status for donations made to the school and we're told that they're going to use it to do things like buy computers and whatnot. Uh, is that does that give them an unfair advantage? Then, given Jeff, what you said about the uh, you know the obvious advantages to being not only computer literate but being uh, internet plugged in, being up to speed on that, is it an unfair advantage to allow them to do that? Well, as a, as a uh, parent with students at South, I wanted to. I tell you, if, if they're going to have it, uh, but the the larger concern, I guess, is a question of. Um, uh, from the left, I think we've we've been concerned over the last number of years about reducing resources in public schooling in order to make private schooling more attractive. And we hear about being bloated and blah 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 blah. Uh, you know, we see that nowadays there are some resources in schools that they don't have that they did in my day. Uh, you know, that in my day we had terrific shops, for instance, mm -hmm. and they spent a lot of money on those. They can't afford them anymore at a time when when arguably technical training is pretty important. Uh, you know, for machinists and uh, tool and die makers and all that stuff, we can't afford to be doing that. Uh, the concern, I guess. Yes, and at the back of the uh, ground still is, is this another uh, thin edge of the wedge towards saying, if you want to have a good school, you better be willing to make private donations to it. And again, if you're poor and you can't, well, then life's not fair. I'm not going to suggest, and I'm not suggesting that teachers are, are overpaid, but the reality is that the biggest chunk of expenditure in schools goes to teachers. And we talk about we can't afford this, we can't afford that, we can't afford something else, we can't afford it at the present salary levels. Does that really mean in our society that we can't afford it? Well, the problem, again, is that if it were the case that everybody's, uh, everybody right now was, uh, was either doing extremely well or doing poorly, I wouldn't, I wouldn't mind that analogy, but where I see teacher salaries frozen for years, and then I see sort of our economy booming away like crazy, and chief executive officer salaries and senior executives getting 100% raises in a year, mm -hmm. I just can't buy the idea that, that they're overpaid. But it, it's generally the case with any enterprise, any organization, that salaries are always the biggest part. At least that's true. You know, people cost money. I can't buy the idea that they're not overpaid. The fact that they have an uh, this big state education monopoly is the, is the pure evidence of it. If uh, why why are the teachers unions and teachers and, and school systems so terrified of privatization of education? Because they know they wouldn't be getting paid what they're getting paid now if we had a free marketplace of education. So the money would instead go into profits from the shareholders who own the schools and rake in the big bucks, it like it's happening with shareholders for the last six years. Could. It quite could, and if a school's doing a good job <clears throat> and offering a product at a lower price than you can get it anywhere else and making a big profit, 
all the more power to them. That's how the school system should be run. Yeah, well, then that comes back to our left-right thing about whether it's better to have a bunch of rich people and a bunch of really poor people. I just well, don't well, think Jim, that's a good society. For, for example, Jim asked, <laughs> is it an unfair advantage to have these tax receipts? And I would say, well, yeah, if they don't give the tax receipt to someone else that asks for it, then obviously they're setting up an unfair advantage. The other thing that occurs to me, me like this is tax receipts is if you've got low income, a tax receipt is of no benefit to you anyway, that it's that's inherently true. going to be more beneficial to but wealthy it, parents. Again, and that's where you would want to get the most money from, too, wouldn't you? So you want to give them a better incentive. And if people with wealth want an incentive, a tax credit is great. They're already being taxed to death for the education system. Okay, let's go back to the phones where Dave joins us. Hi, Dave. Morning, Jim. Yes, sir. Another uh, thing I have, I guess, that bugs me about the school system uh, is the way, I don't know, following up on that with that book the other day, uh, I'm the parent, you're the child, yep. uh, mm -hmm. the self-esteem issue. Mm -hmm. Like, they're... They seem to be more concerned about the fragile self-esteem of the children mm -hmm. than letting them know, you know, really how they're doing in school. Yeah. Uh, case in point, my son, he's on what's called an individual education plan. Yeah. Where he gets uh, extra student uh, services teacher help in some subjects to help him, you know, understand it and get along, sort of extra outside of the classroom help. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when he does get that help in a subject, that instead of getting a grade he gets an IEP designation in that subject. Okay. You don't know what his grade is. Mm -hmm. And the reasoning for that, and I did get it in writing from them because I had an argument with them about it, that uh, if he did get his true marks, uh, his self-esteem would be so low as to preclude him from attempting his work. In other words, they feel that you know if they let him know how he's doing, he would just give up and never do schoolwork ever again. Drop out. And yeah, and just give right up, and that'd be that. And you know what I find—he'd be lost forever. And that's, I, I had to argue with them about it. That well, no, I think it's the other way around. Getting his work, his marks would say, okay, you're not doing well in this. You need to pull yourself up in this. Mm -hmm. Not not be down on them, but say to them, you know, look. Do they you know, do you're the not same? pulling through, but you got to pick it up. Do yeah. they do the same with people who are doing really well, and they don't want to let them know how well they're doing? <clears throat> in case they get a big head or something like that. I, I mean, you have to have a goal to shoot for, and if you're not getting an accurate measurement of your results, how do you even know how you're doing? Is it any wonder that kids don't know how they're doing in school and where they're, and they're directionless? I think it's... It, I, I blame our public school system, and I know I'm going to get a lot of people angry at me over this, but for a lot of the woes in our society today, and I really think it's time that we went to a market system of education beyond, you know, beyond the, the fundamentals. Everybody's got to learn those basics, but I think we can do that in, in a quarter of the time that we're doing it. But I guess one of the things I would say, though, is that figuring out how to raise a kid, particularly a kid who's having some trouble, I think is a really tough thing to figure out. And, and it's interesting how we're always... Raise a child, you mean? Talking about parenting? Know how to educate a kid oh. to, to be a successful uh, adult. You know, and to me, that's a really complicated thing that we don't know that much about. We think we know this, we think we know that, but really it's a pretty hard puzzle to figure out. And there are these areas where we wade in and we're willing to look over the shoulder of the experts and say, you should be doing this, you should be doing that. And I think, you know, we never do that with brain surgeons. We never say, why don't you do surgery like you did 30 years? years ago, you know, I don't like your technique here, or when we're talking about airline pilots, we don't say, you know, why are you landing with these instruments? Why aren't you doing those ones? It seems, I think the reason is because it seems simple. It seems like the answer is we need more discipline or we need more structure or whatever. But realistically, it, it is a hard thing to figure out. And, I, and sometimes I think we have to step back and say, these guys went to school for a long time. These guys are genuinely trying to do the best for your kid. Um, you know, and it's a hard thing to do. And they're doing their best trying to figure it out. They've got a lot of tools that you and I don't have. Um, and and but, sometimes and there's a leap of faith you have true, to make. But then something like whole language comes along. 
which all the experts said, well, this is a fabulous idea. And, and I think, not certainly, some people still think it is. Personally, I think it was a disaster, and I know you guys do too. <coughs> so, so you get something like, I, I, mean, I, I buy the premise of what you're saying until you run into that brick wall and go, well, here's something that all the experts thought was a fabulous idea, and it doesn't work. Yeah, although that feeds back into the question of, you know, innovation. If you do innovation, you're going to have some flops. True. The, I they, guess what got me about it, though, was that, you know, they're giving me their explanations for why they're doing it their way. Yep. And I'm saying, well, it's my son, and yeah. I oh, think, yeah. you know, he's ready for this, and I'm willing to take the responsibility to make the decision to say, do it this way. Right. And I really ran up against a brick wall, and they basically had to threaten to withdraw him from the individual education plan, which, mm -hmm. you know, I didn't want to have to do. Right. I know it's good for him, yep. but I had to basically make that threat so that they would actually accommodate the parent who feels, you know, he well, knows that's, that's good for you sometimes. as a parent, because I think it is your decision. It's not their decision. They can make suggestions, but I think the buck stops at you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for the call, David. Okay. Take care. John joins us next. Hi, John. Hello, Jim. Yes, sir. I'd just like to ask the question. If teachers' wages are 80-plus percent of the total education bill, then when we see figures in the paper that the union, the teachers' union, has $65 billion, and they're still looking for unfunded $600 million from the government, mm -hmm. and they're owners of shares in Maple Leaf Gardens, and they're owners of shares in Maple Leaf Foods, and other big companies in that. Yeah. I think Bob Metz has hit the nail right in the head that the teachers are running a little scared of privatization simply because of the fact that all those perks that are there now at taxpayers' expense won't be there. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, I'm firmly convinced that the sooner the education system gets privatized, the better it's going to be for everyone, uh, and get it out of the hands of the bureaucrats that uh, only continue to see the big Bay Street money. All right. Thanks for the call, John. You're welcome. Good to hear from you. We have to pose for a moment. Uh, pose for a moment. You guys want to pose well, for me? Okay. <laughs> we'll pose for a moment. We'll also pause while we're posing, and then we'll be back with more Talk of the Town. Left, right, and center here with Schlemmer and Metz, and uh, just a couple minutes left in it. Um, <sighs> We have seen a lot of changes to education in this province, uh, the amalgamation of school boards and so on and so on. The jury is still out on, on whether they're good, bad, or indifferent. Um, I mean, pe some people believe very strongly they know already, but I think an objective observer looking at it would have to say we don't know yet. We haven't seen enough yet. Uh, you know, there may be, it may be better than we think. It may be worse. But I want to ask each of you, gentlemen, from the perspective today, what's your sense of these changes? Have they overall been positive or negative? And Bob, I'll ask you first. It, I I honestly can't answer that question right now because it depends on where the government wants to go from here. I mean, they've taken some steps that I regard as both positive and negative. Uh, uh, one, sort of getting rid of the school boards. Two, more centralizing education, which I didn't like. I would have liked to have seen more uh, power coming back right straight to the community. Mm -hmm. So uh, where are they going to go from here? And are they just going to centralize and bureaucratize a complete curriculum for all schools in the province? I don't, I do not think that one monolithic school system is a good thing for anybody. We end up training people who all know the same thing, uh, think the same way, go out there and compete for the same jobs, and therefore run into each other in the marketplace. They're competing with each other, and as a result, their wages tend to fall because they all are competing for the same things. Whereas under a diversified education system where people, I think, can learn totally different skills, talents, whatever, they're competing for different things. And uh, I think the odds for everyone goes up that way. Jeffrey, what about you? Well, I, some of what you say I agree with as far as uh, the, um, 
the need for some diversity, but I am concerned about uh, making sure that everybody gets at least a reasonable head start. I, you know, I recognize that at the end of the road in education, people are going to some people are going to go further than other people. That's just the way that this, the world is, sure. and you can't say that everybody's going to become a PhD. It's, it ain't the reality. The question is, how much of a chance do you give them along the way to to move in that direction if they have that potential? Uh, and my goal would be to make sure that nobody who's smart enough to be a PhD can't become a PhD because of something thrown in his path, like the fact that he can't get into the right school or whatever. Um, I think that a lot of the changes in the last 20 years have been good. That uh, I say, I think that our, the, when I look at the math my kids are learning, I look at the languages and things, I think it's very good. I think they are developing good analytical skills, but I agree as well that bigger is not better. I think they have become monolithic and uh, that we've taken a lot of uh, control away from parents that they should take back and say, you know, thanks for, for driving, but we're ready to, to step back up and take uh, control here again. I think that would all be to the good. Uh, on balance, I think we're, we're heading in the right direction, but we've got some fiddling to do. I want to come back to something that we agreed about earlier and just put this thought in people's minds in case you didn't hear us, that uh, the three of us are agreed that one potential solution to the school building problem, the expense problem, would be to build these, what they call, uh, I don't even know what the terminology is, kind of like satellite schools, where you build a central building that has your gymnasium, your library and your administration offices and everything else are portable so you can you can add or subtract I think it's an interesting idea and the three of us talked about it earlier and kind of agreed that it's something should be looked into and I want to leave that thought with you too because we're going to hear more talk about new schools being built in the city there's a story today about uh, trying to get make sure the developers ante up enough money or more money to build the schools and the new developments and so on and so on it seems to me like it might be a perfect time to start looking at some other alternatives uh, particularly uh, when we look at the uh, the John Paul Mall as Bob referred to it earlier and wonder whether some of the those dollars might not have better gone directly into the classroom instead of building the classroom. Gentlemen, thank you. Always a pleasure. Always informative. Always thought-provoking. And we'll see you again next uh, Wednesday. Yes, you will. Okay. Yeah. Tomorrow on the program, a whole bunch of stuff coming up. Uh